Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. So we signed this place on the very first day of our business, and they're like, how long have you guys been in business? We're like, oh, shit, three hours? <laughs> like, we're going to we have to see your bank account. So, I mean, it was scrappy as hell, but a lot of heart. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Chad Hetherington is the founder and CEO of The Stable, a retail rep group that was acquired by Accenture in the summer of 2022 after just seven years in business. Now, you might not know The Stable's name, but you've no doubt experienced their work, whether ordering the Ring home security system online or buying a Quip toothbrush direct to consumer or on the shelf at Target. Great products don't just land in stores or your inbox. It takes a lot of work to get them positioned for a Target or Walmart or Amazon. Often, it takes a retail rep group to make the connections and broker the deal. That's where Chad saw opportunity to do things in a new way for omnichannel retail. Along the way, the stable raised money, which is relatively uncommon for a service firm. They acquired a half dozen other agencies to bring in more expertise quickly, and they grew to more than 500 employees with offices in Los Angeles, Seattle, Bentonville, Arkansas, as well as headquarters in Minneapolis. Now, Chad continues to run this growing business under the umbrella of Accenture's global organization. It's not a result he could have imagined growing up in Adelaide, Australia. The son of a car mechanic, he inherited his father's scrappiness and he went for it. I finished high school and I didn't know what I was going to do. University and college isn't as big, at least then it wasn't as big as it is here in the States. And I wasn't smart enough to go to college. <laughs> um, so, um, but, you know, music and I love, um, you know, filming and making videos with the old VHS, like camcorders and mm -hmm. stuff. And in my senior year of high school, I was always filming stuff all the time. And um, I thought, wow, that'd be awesome to like get into the film and television business. And um, I finished high school and I was like, well, the only way to get into the business is to start knocking on doors. And you know, I submitted my resume, which had nothing on it except high school. <laughs> and uh, I would go to all the TV stations. I would go to all the production companies and just try and get, you know, an internship or, or any type of work and they wouldn't give it to me. So I took a, a mini course in like film and video production just to learn how to edit, how to hold a camera properly, uh, how to do lighting. And I did that for a few months. Um, but very quickly then I just started, you know, getting these little free jobs, helping, you know, hold cables on the football field or uh, hold a light or something like that on a, a TV show. And, um, you know, that led to like a job. 
that I get paid for. I'm mm-hmm. 17, so I'm like, okay, I got to start a business, I guess, because I'm going to be getting a check or cash. Or I don't even know. <laughs> to like, <laughs> So I started my first company called, it was a beautiful name, it was called Hetherington Media Group, and we were mm-hmm. to take over the world. Um, and this was still, you were in Australia? I was in Australia, I'm uh-huh. like 17. Okay. And, um, you know, so I got the In ba- your childhood bedroom? Where was headquarters? Yeah, it was, it was my parents' house, <laughs> right. you know, so it was... Um, so, you know, my home address was on my business cards, which I got printed up. And, um, you know, I just started networking in Adelaide, getting these types of jobs. And I, you know, had to bartend over those, you know, a couple of those years just to have like regular income. But, you know, sometimes you'd be like, hey, I got to go away for four weeks because I'm on set for a documentary and no one would believe me at the bar. Um, but, um, you know, just one job led to the other. And, I got to know most people in town and fortunate was enough to work on some really cool projects from, you know, big car commercials to TV shows, documentaries and short films. And I'm I'm 20 years old and I get a phone call from the uh, school that like I did the video course in and they're like, you've done a lot of shit over the last three years. Can you come and teach some of that to our students sure uh, okay so yeah i am like walk into this like little film school and you're teaching people how to hold cameras and how to do all this stuff so the school offers me a job for i don't know fifty thousand dollars a year right i'm 20 years old it's a huge amount of money right for me <laughs> and you know my parents think i've made it right yeah so i um yeah, I mean, I I was teaching how to edit, how to film, how to light, how to make short films. And at the same time, I was like making ads for, you know, retailers, for brands. And what my trick was, was I'd spend, I'd do the teaching and then I'd walk down the mall, Rundle Mall in Adelaide with the yellow pages and I'd circle all the businesses that I'd see. I'd go back to the score to my house and I would send them on a Hetherington Media Group letterhead, right? Very um, official. Very official. Um, you know, um, make a TV commercial for less than two grand or something like that. Uh-huh. And I'd you know, go to the mail and I'd like put them in the envelopes and send them out and just waited for the phone to ring. And occasionally it would ring and it would go through to my office at the film school and I'd have a very, you know, awesome voicemail that I'd have like one of the students do it for me. And, um, and then I'd bring them on set to come and shoot the ad. And I'd go to the TV stations, Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10 in Adelaide, and meet with the sales team. I'm like, hey, this like jewelry company is wanting to spend like 25 grand on some media on your station. And I did that over and over and over and over again. And then it flipped the other way. The stations started calling me and saying, we've got a client who Mm. needs work. So I'm getting paid my salary at um, uh, the film school. I'm now also making, you know, money shooting all these ads and I'm leveraging students. I'm helping industry and I'm knowing everyone in town. And then at nighttime, I'm putting on a suit and I'm going to like functions like networking events and like handing out business cards, trying to find like 
anyone that would like let me just shoot shit because I just loved it. Yeah. I didn't know I was being an entrepreneur. I was just like, I was just doing it because I was doing it. It just made sense to you. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I think I was 22, 23. I was like, I should probably start doing this as like a real company and get away from like the teaching stuff. That was fun, right? And it was like, I was getting paid. But like, that's not really what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got together with a few friends and we said, let's start an actual company that isn't just about freelancing and doing ads and like, I'm getting all this work, let's, let's do it. So um, we you know, sat down, they both had other jobs and we all you know, threw a little bit of money in to get the business off the ground, not much, like the tiniest amount. Mm-hmm. And I set it up in a friend's um, accounting office in uh, Carrington Street in Adelaide and had a desk, had a crappy laptop and you know, we started a company called Logic Films and we looked at the whole industry and said, you know, I think that we can be um, better than our competition. I think we can like make uh, big moves here because we're more nimble. Um, we've got a great network of people we can tap as resources to help us on these projects. And we should go like East Coast to Sydney and Melbourne and find work there and bring it to Adelaide because we can do it more affordable. Is Adelaide a small town? It's like a million people. Oh, okay. Not small. Yeah. Um, was there any thought at that point of going beyond Australia? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it was like world plans, right? Of like all the stuff we want to do. We want to get clients. We'd love to get clients from the US. And we eventually did, which was awesome. Um. But it was very scrappy. I mean, it was like, and we were, we were super fortunate. I think like day three, we got a call. Do you remember Cartridge World? Like Mm-mm. where you go and like get your inkjet oh, sure, printer sure. Yeah, refilled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was actually founded in Adelaide. And they called and said, you know, we, um, we want to do a corporate training video for all our franchisees and we want to do it in 32 languages. Mm. Fantastic first job to get. <laughs> so... We took that job on. We did it. We got our deposit. That deposit helped pay for our editing suite, which also got us into a proper location. Um, and then more work just started coming in. You know, slowly but surely, that business logic became one of the top production companies in the state. Hmm. And 18 years later, it's still going. Real Today, it's still going. Right now. Still based in Adelaide? Still based in Adelaide. Any of your founding partners still there? Uh, we've all sold out at different times. Um, and, um, uh, Paul Curran, who runs it today is still operating the business and he's had it now for, I think 14 years now, 14, hmm. 15 years since I moved to the States. Why did you leave? Why did, what brought you to the States? Um, I loved what I did and I was, I was understanding entrepreneurship. I was like, this is cool. And I'm like doing all this fun stuff and probably no different to somewhat of the stable, somewhat related, but. I was always trying to, I think probably in the last year, I was trying to figure out how we would scale. I never sat down and did a business plan and said, if my three edit suites were running at 12 hours a day at, you know, 300 bucks an hour, here's what my revenue would be. I never mm-hmm. did that ever. I just like, and need another edit suite because we're busy. That was my business sense. I didn't have much things you learn. Um, and uh, so I started trying like all these different things because I was working with all these great brands. I was making ads and things. And um, um, so we started trialing different things that we could get scale. So randomly, I started looking at SMS promotions. So like 
Australian Idol was on TV and it was mm-hmm. like SMS your, you know, who you like and uh, it cost 55 cents. So I went and studied that business for a little bit and realized that you get like people that put those deals together get like 10 to 15 cents back from the carriers when you do those deals. So I went to, you know, the cartridge ones or other ones and said, let's take out like a full page ad in one of the magazines, give away a holiday and everyone has to text the number to like have their chance to win. So, you know, go in like the People magazine of Australia, something like that. Next thing you know, I'd get a check for 15 grand. Wow. (laughs) And I was like, this is cool. So we started Logic Interactive. We started Logic Finance. We're like, just, I was trying all this different stuff for scale and I could not find it. And I was getting a little frustrated because I could not see beyond like, you know, a few million bucks of revenue a year. And we had these clients in the States who were definitely bigger and we're like, I've got to get to America somehow. Mm. So I ended up getting the opportunity in 2007. Um, one of my mentors at the time had a business which started in Adelaide. It then had scaled globally, and he was the first one to put board games on DVD. Um, and they had a production business, and you know, I guess we're friendly competitors and whatnot. But um, yeah, he, he gave me the chance to come to the U.S., and um, where, what, what city was it based in? Straight to Hollywood. Okay. And it, it was that sort of the goal? Yeah. I mean, um, he basically, and he was right as many were who were mentors of mine, which was like, you know, there's only f- so far in Adelaide you can get with what you are doing. Um, but you need to shift your career. And instead of making ads for brands, you should be helping brands scale their businesses in retail because I'd make mm. all these ads for brands who would make millions of dollars at retail and I'd make my 15, 20 grand, which was great. But like, I was like, I need to get in the retail side. <laughs> so. And did you find as you were working with these brands that you had ideas? Totally. Yeah. And so anyway, I came over on a Qantas jet and never been to the States ever. And I had a couple of suitcases. I was fortunate enough to be, you know, with the guy who brought me over. <laughs> and so. You're in your mid twenties at this point? I was point, 25. Or? Okay. And. You know, landed at LAX, jumped in a cab, went straight to the office. It's like 6.30 in the morning. Meet everybody. And that first night, um, you know, we're sitting there at the house and, you know, he's like, we got to uh, go and do a licensing deal this week. And I've never done a licensing deal before in my life. I don't even know what Walmart is. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, <laughs> and never been to a Walmart. Just figure it out, you yeah. know. So, um, you know, that, that was an incredible training for those first few years, which was understanding retail. And it was a complete career shift from TV and film Mm -hmm. to now you're conceptualizing ideas, you're taking, uh, you know, licenses and properties, you're putting them into products and you're putting them in retail. After that company, I went and consulted for a few years and I consulted for, you know, various companies, helping them shape strategy for their go-to-market. So if they wanted to get a product on the shelf at a big retailer, mm-hmm. I would work with them to help them do that. And um, and what did you know that they didn't? I think like those first two years was like 10 years of learning for me. It was like, I got to know a lot of people within those retailers. I could pick up the phone and call just about anyone at that time. Um, and have a, a product or an idea that I thought was really unique for their, their retail locations mm-hmm. and try to convince them to buy it. <laughs> and, you know, not all of them work out, but it was a ton of fun to 
interact and understand and learn different businesses in different categories from healthcare to sporting to electronics. And I had an array of different clients I was being able to help. And I think they just liked my tenacity, <laughs> not being afraid to pick up the phone and just call someone mm-hmm. and get a meeting scheduled and um, you know, try and help them get their product launched. So did so that was a couple of years, and then did you think I'm ready to set up my own shop? You're you're still in LA <laughs> at this point. Um, I was, and well, I was between LA and Minneapolis because Kate, my wife, I met in LA. She's from Minneapolis. Of course, it's always the way the story goes. <laughs> I knew there was going to be a romance, and it was going to yeah, well, have something to do with Minnesota. I'm going to say like, uh, and she will agree that I probably push Minneapolis more than her. Really? Because we were just always here, hmm. all the time. <laughs> Target's here, Best Buy's here, General Mills 3M's big companies. So here. you don't mean for her family, you were here for work. We were here for work all the time. Okay. And she's in the business as well. She's in video games and we were just here like all the time. And we lived and breathed retail. So we said, let's move here. And we moved here. We uh, found a little place in St. Louis Park and um, six months in, I meet another young entrepreneur who had just sold his company called Mophie, which is the uh, juice pack for your iPhone, which charges, you know, the case with the okay. built-in charger. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he had just started this new company called Quirky. And it was a company in which if you had an idea for a product, you would submit it online. People around the world who were, you know, registered, um, community members would vote whether or not that product was cool or not. It was like, not that we called it crowdsourcing because we hated that word, but it it was that early stage, like 2010 internet, leveraging community to help determine outcomes for products. Okay. So, And and how did Quirky make money off of that? So we would take those ideas and um, the best ones that were voted – and then we would go and commercialize them. So we, mm. we had designers, engineers, logistics, supply chain, sales, retail, all that uh, on staff. We didn't when we, you know, I was employee eight or nine. So um, I just was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. And I have to work with this, this young guy. Mm-hmm. And, and that was based here? In, it was in New York. Oh, in New York. Okay. And so he's like, I need you to move to New York. I'm like, well, I just moved to Minneapolis. <laughs> so can I do it from here? And he's like, absolutely not. <laughs> so um, That was before the hybrid office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I put all my shit in storage in Eden Prairie. <laughs> and Kate is now pregnant. And we're flying to New York to move into this tiny apartment in Tribeca. By the way, it costs like six times the amount per month. Mm-hmm. Um, but just thought this was like an incredible opportunity. And I had been an entrepreneur or worked with entrepreneurs. And for me at that time, it was more just like, I need to work with this guy because he's going to teach me a lot more. And I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm three or four years into the country. I've mm-hmm. still got more work to do. Mm-hmm. So I moved to New York, became his head of sales, began picking up the phone, calling my contacts. We go meet Bed Bath and Target and Home Shopping Network and QVC and Amazon, all these companies. And we end up, you know, striking retail partnerships for the products. And over the next five years, Quirky grew from, you know, eight people to I think 450, 500 people. And we we're making hundreds of different products. I flew all over the world 
you know, working and putting together these um, retail programs. Yeah. And I just loved the products. It was so fun. So, so what happened? Did he decide to sell? What happened to Quirky? Um, you know, a sad story. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out, um, which, you know, w- was exceptionally sad because that company had a lot of heart and it was so much fun and so many talented people that worked in that building. And, um, you know, I, I probably can't pinpoint one thing that didn't work outside of, um, you know, we, we had to produce a, a lot of product and service a lot of retailers. We had to market all of those products. Um, that's a big company to, 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 to try to keep, you know, mm-hmm. going. But I love the vision of it. I mm-hmm. thought it was the most phenomenal company idea I've ever heard of. Still so do. When it, so, I mean, you were there until the end? Uh, just about, um, you know, probably a few months earlier. But I had decided that it was my time. And I had done everything that I wanted to do with Ben and for Quirky. And I sat with Ben and, you know, we had the conversation and he was extremely supportive. And um, I said, listen, I'm... A lot of our retail relationships were direct and other times we used rep groups. And one or two of those rep groups were good and the rest sucked. And I said, I think there's an opportunity to build a new type of agency that helps brand owners, product owners launch their product and their story in retail with someone who's going to give a shit. And that was the very early foundations of the stable. How did Quirky set the stage for the stable? That's next after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best and Flanagan, with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best and Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. Chad has just moved to Minnesota. Now he's packing his bags again to go to New York and learn the retail business from Corky. So for people who are not in the, the retail industry, I mean, a, a rep group, basically, you don't just walk into Target and say, hey, I've got this cool new shampoo that you're going to want to sell. You need to be represented sort of like with a book. You'd have an agent, right? That's what a rep group does. Yeah. It helps you make those connections. Yep. But, but you saw a place where you could make that less about just the transaction and more almost kind of like a creative partner. Yeah. Um, I, I felt the groups that I did use at Quirky were pretty transactional. Mm-hmm. They, would, they wouldn't push and they wouldn't fight for um, the product that we were trying to sell. And the, I think what did it for me is I was, we were pitching QVC. And Quirky had developed this ice scraper, which was awesome. It like extended out so you didn't have to go to the other side to scrape it. And it was really user friendly. Mm -hmm. And the rep had said that the buyer wasn't interested. I'm like, what? Like, did they see a sample? No, we just sent the the PDF like sales sheet. And I was like, that's lazy. 
So I'm sitting there going, I wonder how I get this buyer's attention with this ice scraper. So I sat there with the CMO of Quirky and we came up with this great idea. We got a bottle of Maker's Mark and we froze it in a 300 pound block of ice and we dry iced and we shipped it to the buyer at QVC. And it arrived to her desk at like Friday with the ice scraper, right? (laughs) Monday, I get a phone call um, from someone else within QVC and they say, Hey, she wasn't there on Friday. So it, it like half of it dripped all over her carpet. <laughs> and so um, I am to go there this Thursday to meet a few other buyers for some other products. And I, I shut her an email on the Tuesday and said, Hey, I'd love to talk about this guy's scraper. I sent you a sample. And I walked in and I'm sitting in this room and I know she's about to walk in. And she walks in, she goes, That was the coolest fucking thing I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, Everybody in the company like came to get that ice scraper and try and like Aww. try and get this bottle of Maker's Mark. Even the CEO was so cool. She, did, she didn't throw snowballs. I was afraid she was gonna be like throwing no, ice shards. No, she loved at you. it. Okay, she good. loved it. <laughs> and she gave me an order for uh, half a million dollars. Wow! All of you know, all from nine hundred dollars of expense and a bit of thought. And um, so anyway, it's you know. I, I knew that there would be there was a better way a better way yeah. to, to to build an agency that really helped brands succeed and make sure that their story, which is important, shine through in the best possible way to read. And that was the first idea of the stable. So you came back to the Twin Cities. Came back to the Twin Cities. You set up shop. I mean, you incorporated as the stable. At this point, is it just you? It was, um, I was sitting there with my wife, Kate, and, you know, she was, she's obviously in the distribution video games business, and we're sitting there, and she's like, you know, we really got to do this. And, um, and so we decided to partner up together and figure out how we would put this business together. And um, lo and behold, I'm running around town trying to find financing because I needed some cash to get the business off the ground outside of just some of my own. And everyone's turning me down because you don't go and raise money for a, a rep group. Right. It's unheard of. Yeah. So I end up having lunch with a friend of mine, Nick Larson, who I'd met at the Minneapolis Club the year before, who was running a charity event for, um, for Guild incorporated big awesome party that they had every year for a great charity and i showed him the business plan and said this is what i want to do i want to i want to be a better rep group for brands to help them tell their story however the world of retail is going to change in the next five years and it's no longer going to be about just walking into a store direct to consumer is going to be a larger play um amazon's going to be a larger play and i have a feeling that like Instagram and Facebook are going to sell product and brands are going to want to leverage those platforms to sell their product. What year was this when you were making 2015, this prediction? Okay. Early 15. And Nick thought that was exceptionally cool and, you know, decided to come in as our partner. Mm. And between he and myself, we got the capital needed to get the, the business off the ground and immediately hire a couple of exceptional people that have been in that game to come join us on this journey. And we set up the company. We went to the Minneapolis club front desk and we said, 
hey, those little conference rooms up there that you have for, you know, events or like, not the big ones, obviously, it's the small ones. Could we rent that for like a month? And <laughs> they're like, sure. And um, so, you know, it was a white linen tablecloth. We rolled in with the laptops. We wrote on the whiteboard the business plan just, and, you know, it was me, Kate, Nick, uh, Lindsay Powell, who we hired, our head of ops, um, and Mark Donsoni, our other partner. We sat in there and just said, all right, how are we going to do this? We had no clients. We had, like, that, like nothing. Yeah. And began this seven-year <laughs> assault and <laughs> journey that we've been on to build what we wanted to build, which was the next generation agency for consumer brands. Who was your first client? Uh, our first client was, um, do you know Biofreeze? You ever use that? Mm-mm. What is it? Um, so it's, you know, if you've got like, if you're sore in certain parts of your body, you, oh, you sure. know, sports mm-hmm. stars use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, they, uh, Biofreeze hadn't come out yet, but that brand was in the product world selling ice packs and they were already in Target. <laughs> and they hired us on like day three or four and there was already, they were already doing business. They just wanted to elevate it further. So how, how did they find you? How did you find them? Friend of a friend of a okay. friend. Yep. So. Yep. And then um, about a week later, we signed Ring, the doorbell. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, I don't know, about a year or two old, I think, and just beginning their work in trying to get to retail. Wow. And before Ring was what it is yeah, today. Yeah. Was that also just word of mouth? Word of, yeah. I mean, actually, Jamie was good friends with Ben from Quirky, and I remember him when I worked there. and. Um, their head of sales, Don, I actually worked with at the first company I came over here to work mm. for in LA. And so that just happened. It was like one client to the next. And we just worked that first six to eight months. And we wanted to sign brands that we loved and work with people that we really loved. And we were fortunate to, in that first six months, create a ton of momentum. Still, in the Minneapolis club because that one month turned to eight months <laughs> because we had signed this lease on Nicolette Mall. We found this spot above the old Russia's bridal shop. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then uh, I think it was the restaurant, uh, Ling and Louise was the restaurant next door. So they owned both buildings, the Russia's family, I guess. And um, they were to knock down the wall in between above those two. And then the secret was knocking uh, an entrance into the Skyway so that, you know, we were always going over to Target and it was easy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we signed this place on the very first day of our business. And they're like, how long have you guys been in business? We're like, oh, shit, three hours. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're going to we have to see your bank account. So, I mean, it was scrappy as hell, but a lot of heart. And, um, you know, one client turned to two, turned to four, turned to six. We'd fly to San Francisco, we'd do 13 meetings, take the red eye home, go you know, work all day and go back there the next week, go do it again and try and find like the coolest brands that we possibly could. And the magic was that you were taking new brands, up and coming brands, and you were delivering them to big retailers yeah. because you had those relationships. Correct. Yeah, we would help them get in front of them. We would help them shape their strategy. 
And then we would help make sure they would get operationally right to do business with those retailers and help them run that business day to day for them. And, you know, that business model was nothing unique because that's what a rep group does. But we were very focused that time on doing it with these up, up and coming brands that mm-hmm. we just loved that we thought would be, again, the next like modern day brand. No, about two to three years in, we were growing exceptionally fast. We had a lot of great clients. We're doing very well. The problem we had is we couldn't, we had cash flow problems. And like any, any business does, it's growing for you, you know, just part of it. And at that point, you know, Nick and I's house are on the line where, you know, make, we've got to make payroll next week and we're not getting, you know, payment terms for shit. We, because we're always at the bottom, we're like the last person to get paid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't know that when you were like running the business off spreadsheets. And we didn't have a CFO. But, you know, so we're writing checks ourselves to make payroll. Um, but we believed in what we were doing. And in early 2017, we said we need to take the next step in the journey. And we need to start looking at like, one, we need to be at Amazon. Hands down, we need to go to Seattle, open an office there, and replicate what we've been doing here in Minnesota. And we need to start hiring creative talent to start producing content and helping brands build their identity and be this like true end-to-end solution. Hmm. So we went on a roadshow to raise capital. We did a Series A round, which again, completely unheard of for a service business. Right. Did it work? Well, we called every venture capital company that we could. I think we did. 30, Nick can remember, there's like 38 pitches. I think we got 36 no's. You just like, need one yes. Just need one yes. We finally got this yes from a family office in North Dakota called Gen 7. Hmm. And they just loved our business model. And they were highly interested in understanding Amazon, which was our next frontier. And they just, they invest in companies that they believe in. Hmm. And they gave us a check for 4 million bucks. Wow. And, you know, we opened Seattle almost immediately. We went from, um, I think, 14, 15 people to 30 people in about two or three months. And, you know, began helping clients both between Target with Amazon, et cetera. We'd have our uh, social team. We'd have a brand building team. And really trying to help clients not only elevate their brand story at retail, but also just how they show up in general. So we had a great creative team that was up and coming to help those brands do that. How different was the experience of selling to, you know, repping with Target versus Amazon once you're out in Seattle? You're constantly optimizing 24-7, right? It's it's definitely an ad game. It's how do you get on the front page right. when someone types you in. And, and up to this point, this is like 2017, do you feel like selling to Target was still more about the physical store first, getting it on the shelf versus getting it on the website? It was changing then for sure. And Target was making big moves digitally, which we knew. Mm-hmm. And I think that was part of the reason uh, to open in Seattle. It wasn't just because of Amazon. It was because we... We needed that talent. We needed to understand e-commerce better. And that certainly helped us in the overall ecosystem. So 
understanding how um, you know, Amazon's been a first mover, obviously, in so many different things. So being able to understand that world mm-hmm. and then provide value of that insights into what we do at, at some other retailers in terms of how advertising works, <laughs> how keyword works, mm-hmm. things like that. So it certainly was the right time for us to do it, even though I felt like we were really late in doing Amazon. Really? But we were probably one of the first in town. Did you, what was one of your first successes with Amazon? Um, we had, we were representing Simply Safe at Target and um, they wanted to open Amazon and expand there. So we helped them do that and it became a, a pretty great business there. And that was really the thing. It was like, how do we take our existing client base and begin trying to extend services to help them, you know, at other, with other services we're doing. So one of the favorite ones, though, was Homesick Candles. I don't know if you've seen them. Mm-mm. The candles are like... Maybe I have. They're like the state names on it, so it smells like Minnesota. Oh, got it. Great gift item. What does Minnesota smell like? I haven't smelled Minnesota <laughs> in a while. <laughs> A lake, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> Snow? I don't <laughs> Snow. Um, no, it's, Maybe a balsam uh, yeah, for whatever. Totally. Yeah. Pine. Uh, and you know, we put that on Amazon. It just like blew up, became hmm. one of the top selling candles on Amazon. Like up until, you know, end of 2019, we got the business to about 65 people. And we were between here and, and Seattle. We had a great portfolio of brands we were working with every day. We were su- name, name a few more names, because there are a few big ones that you helped launch at Target, like um, Quip, wasn't that one that That's you right. worked on? We did, we did Quip. Yeah, Smarty Pants and um, uh, Parrot Drones. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a great, sexy portfolio of companies that we got to work with every day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these like direct-to-consumer brands were beginning to identify retail as that next kind of growth spurt for them. Mm-hmm. They looked at companies like Harry's and what they did and, you know, kind of looked at that as a, as a massive opportunity. And I think we were in a, the right place, right time with a good portfolio of direct-to-consumer brands that we were helping. And other brands signed up with us to help them try to do similar things. And so we got to work with, yeah, I mean, incredible brands and some of the biggest brands that are in those stores today. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see that shift coming? I mean, when you started, and it's amazing how quick all of this has happened, but first it was, you know, brands figuring out how to sell on the internet, how to sell through social media. Very quickly, it's, oh, all these brands were created on the internet. Now they've got to get to the store. Did, did you see that kind of? I did, yeah. I mean, I, I saw it at Quirky because, like, I mean, these were, these I, I mean, these product ideas were developed on the internet mm-hmm. and sold on Quirky.com. And we would take a lot of that data to our retail partners to help get them comfortable with taking a risk on it. And, you know, more direct-to-consumer brands began to pop up at that time. And, you know, we, we saw that as an incredible opportunity to be able to work with those types of brands to bring them to retail and build an experience that was 
felt similar to their online direct-to-consumer business and activate that in a meaningful way in a store. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, so fortunate, so fortunate to be able to work with those types of brands and those types of entrepreneurs. Pretty quickly, it seemed like you were, the stable was acquiring a, a, a company every other day. <laughs> when, did the, when did that phase begin and what led to that? It, it was very, Nick and I and Kate and Mark and the team, I mean, we, we really have thought through this business and you'll see us especially back then, pulling all-nighters, doing strategy sessions, trying to figure out where the world was going, and we wanted to be first. And we had a good, stable business <laughs> at that point. And, um, stable was stable. Yes. Thank God. I was getting paid now. You had a kid at this point. Uh, two, one or two, two. Oh, two kids. Two, okay. Two boys, Jack and Sam. And um, the... We needed more capabilities, and the fastest way for us to get those capabilities that we knew that our clients would demand of us at some point was either organically, which was going to be an investment, or acquisition. So we began, again, talking to potential investors and doing the roadshow, and we ended up connecting with a private equity group out of Connecticut called Growth Catalyst Partners, GCP, and they really believed in us and what we were doing, and they knew that this omni-channel retail world was about to explode. Mm -hmm. And how do we move quickly before all the big guys do? Yeah. And so COVID hit, it's March, April 2020, pandemic, everyone's at home. And we're like, all right, shit, like, do we just hold off on this strategy, just keep doing what we're doing? And we made the decision that changed everything, which was, let's not sit on our hands. Let's use this as a chance to go fast. And we began exploring partnerships and acquisitions with a number of different types of companies that we felt would be complementary. So we started with the core business. We acquired a Walmart shop called Creative Sales and Marketing. Walmart shop meaning a a company that worked primarily with Walmart. They worked with all types of brands. food. Not a Walmart shop like a Walmart store. (laughs) (laughs) For the record, yes. (laughs) I don't want to get in trouble. And uh, so, yeah, we we bought one of them. That was our first big one. We then bought Jacobs Marketing, which was one of our competitors here in Minneapolis, and they were much larger than us, and we had mad respect for them. And that was a really good marriage to bring that together, and that solidified our target business quite strongly. Mm -hmm. And and then popped up a company called Rich Context, which was this ad tech product, which allowed brands to leverage their social ads and allow consumers to shop from the ads, but choose the retailer they want it shipped from. And we just thought that was genius. So we had the acquisition of Rich Context, and that really was like a game changer for us because this was the first like big move outside of the core business for us in terms of working with every major brand now and helping them solve the issue of one-click shopping in social and mm. giving consumers 
an easier, more convenient way to shop and buy product. Mm -hmm. And that really helped shape the following year with what we were going after. And we knew that social was going to be big. We knew that direct-to-consumer was going to be big. So all of these things on the whiteboard of us trying to figure out exactly what to bolt onto the business that made sense for our clients. Were you at all nervous about taking on all of this, you know, risk and expending all the, these resources to, to buy? You've got a lot of em- how many employees at this point? Uh, end of 2020, I think we were probably a uh, couple hundred, yeah. maybe, I want to say. Yeah. No, because I believed in it. And so did Nick, and so did Kate, and so did Mark, and so did the rest of the team. And did you see results immediately? Yeah, our clients responded exceptionally well to it, which is the, that was the most important thing. We're in the client business. We need to make sure that what we're bolting on makes sense for their business for growth mm-hmm. and that we're ahead of where things are going. Right. So that was not certainly as nervous as it was. Like it was nervous in like the early days of the stable when mm-hmm. you know, we can't like figuring out payroll. Mm-hmm. That was awful. But I'm so glad we went through that because I think every business has to. The pandemic actually fueled your business? Yes. Yeah. I mean, certainly people were buying, right? So, mm-hmm. so, so brands were, were selling more product. And I think because of the moves we were making, people were starting to pay a bit more attention to us mm-hmm. as a legitimate you know, agency now. Sure. And, um, you know, we had great people internally helping us shape you know, the future and helping us make good decisions. And we had a good board of directors at the time and good private equity partners and investors who were behind us 100%. And, um, you know, we got those three businesses integrated. They went exceptionally well. And then it was time for the next slug. And uh, Which is? We, <laughs> we acquired three companies. Well, they were announced, you know, four, four, I mean, probably remember, right? I got the press releases, yeah. Four weeks, I think Mm -hmm. we acquired three companies. Mm -hmm. One was another Walmart agency to strengthen us there. And then the big one for us, which was not one, but two of the largest Shopify agencies. And these are the agencies who build websites and online experiences for some of the world's greatest brands on the Shopify platform. Mm -hmm. And we were a big believer in Shopify. And for us to be able to say that we are an agency that helps our brands connect with consumers wherever they are, we need a direct business. Hmm. So we were extremely fortunate to buy both of those companies at the time and bring them together. And what we found was, like most of the acquisitions, so much synergy between them that as we brought them together, there's going to be a lot of complementary parts to it. And that really, I mean, that took us to 500 people. 500 people (laughs) in how many offices? Four offices and then remote people all over. Pinch me moments? Are are you like, I can't believe I'm running this big of an agency this quickly? Uh, Partly, yes. I mean, I I never wanted the stable. Well, I didn't start the stable for it to be big, but it probably had to be big because we had a big idea. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there, certainly there was times I don't look back that often and say like you know like how did I do that? I think I just I just did it. Mm-hmm. That's all I knew, which was like my head is going forward and I'm head down getting this thing done. 
was selling part of that moving forward? I mean, once you took on investors, that has to be on your mind, that there's got to be an exit at some point. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it was. It was not the goal. It was, yes, you've got investors. But we were having a lot of fun doing what we were doing, and the results were showing. The clients were happy. They were getting results across all these different channels. And we're doing some really cool stuff. I mean, we're doing live streaming where, you know, Instagram live streaming, buying products and helping brands get set up for that. We're running our Amazon businesses. We're doing direct-to-consumer builds for Spanx and In-N-Out Burger and Netflix. And we've got this amazing retail business, which is ever-changing, and an ad platform, which is helping consumers do one click. I mean, we were just having so much fun. Mm-hmm. But we started getting, we just started getting calls from people that were interested in just what we were doing in mm-hmm. general. And, you know, Accenture had come along and we'd met them about a year ago. And I always say it, it was like when you get two great companies sitting in a room together, jamming on just ideas in the world, you know, I think really cool things can happen from that. And, I didn't go into it with any intention or what could this be outside of it'd be really cool to partner up together with them and they work with some incredible clients and vice versa, maybe there's something here. And um you know, as we continued to meet with them, we just we knew we needed a another partner for the next phase of where we were going. And Accenture helped show us that they could help us get there quicker. Hmm. And they are believers in commerce and multi-channel commerce as we are. And, um, you know, we would be kind of, you know, new into their world. And um, we just felt like that would be a really good match. And lo and behold, it you know, came down to them acquiring us in, in July. Yeah. Big, big, big <laughs> deal. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Was there any part of you that was like, I, I you know, that I don't want to, I don't want to be part of a bigger entity that's going to change the culture, or you're going to be pushed out, or I mean, what, <laughs> what were your thoughts and concerns? No, it, it was, um, I, um, I, I go into everything pretty open minded. I always have, and I always have to. I've never tried to do what's just best for me, ever. And that's like, I don't, even the stable, it's like, it's about the clients and what they're doing. And then it becomes about the employees. And I'm a massive, like, uh, like, I want more entrepreneurs in the world. I want more people to be successful and, you know, achieve their dreams and do all their, all the stuff that they want to do. So, with the Accenture thing, it was the same thing. It was like, what's best for everybody, not just me? Mm-hmm. Best for my people, best for my clients, best for the industry. How freaking cool is this? <laughs> I, 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 yeah, like, listen, you've- It's you, validating. You, yeah, you have to. It's, yeah. That's why we met, you know, and discussed this so many times to see if it would be a fit, and it just made so much sense. So- did you have any conditions or terms as far as like you wanted to keep your office or keep your team intact or anything? I mean, it's 
you know, we're still doing the same stuff. You're still the stable for now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're still doing all the same work we were. We're still nimble and scrappy. Mm -hmm. We're still exploring the next platform of consumer meets, you know, brand. Mm -hmm. And what's the biggest change? Um, I, I, I don't. No, I mean, I. Do you have I to ever put on a tie? Do you have to go to any big meetings? <laughs> no. <laughs> Still wearing sneakers to the office? Yes, okay. I am. Um, no, I mean, it's just it's a, a a wider network now for me to you know interact with more people now. Mm-hmm. Not just from a management standpoint, but just like interacting. I mean, Accenture is seven hundred thousand employees globally. Mm-hmm. I'm on the phone with people all over the world now. Hmm. trying to solve issues and problems that their clients are facing around commerce. So hmm. so I certainly it's it's only been great. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, there's like some changes here and there that you have to have with that. I mean, we were the buyer of six companies, you know. It's like you got to get integrated. Right. You got to go through this process, but like the same business still doing the same thing. And you plan to stay. Oh yeah. Totally. Yeah. You're 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 okay with not being the owner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's I love the work. I'm super passionate about it. I want to know what is the next, you know, uh device of the future or the next platform in which you and I are going to be buying products from. And that I'm, was my next question. I don't know. Can yet. you t- tell me <laughs> what know. is the future of retail? <laughs> <laughs> Can you sum it up in the next thirty seconds? I wish I could. I wish I could. No, I mean well, I, what excites you right now? Stores is gonna have a still continue to have a, a massive play in how we shop a hundred percent. And there is, you know, the targets Walmart's the world I think have done an exceptional job over the last few years just making that environment you know better place to shop easier to research ask questions be smarter introduce you know pick up drive up which i do all the time mm-hmm. you know one click shopping through ads live streaming i mean all of these things it's about now right now where we sit it's about how do you make it easy for the customer to buy your brand? And that's what we're trying to solve for our brands every single day. It's not just one channel. You need to have a completely, again, omni-channel strategy and make sure that you show up in the best possible way on every possible platform that a consumer wants to discover you. And if they don't, they're going to buy someone else. It feels more complicated to launch a product today because you you have to think about so many different channels. And when you're yeah. small and you're just starting out, how do you do that? Uh, you get good people around you. You interact with other brands that have you know been there, done that, and you get their advice. You know, part of what we do, obviously, is help guide some of that strategy now for how we think you should go to market. And, you know, what is the right direction? Is it is it D to C for two to three years? Is it straight to retail? You know, is it social and leveraging TikTok and Instagram? You know, you're seeing huge upside in these kind of YouTube content creator brands that are being built. You're looking at like what Mr. Beast is doing and, you know, he's selling out a product in minutes. That's an interesting way to go to market. It's different, mm-hmm. but it's working. And he's leveraging an incredible sized audience to help, you know, bring people to buy product. Yeah. 
It's pretty crazy. It um, what's your favorite social platform? I mean, I, I'm, pro- I'm, I'm still probably on Instagram more, but I love TikTok. <laughs> I just, I mean, personally my, or from, professionally, both. I mean, from my video days, I just think it's incredible. And yeah. my, my nine-year-old son is, uh, he's on TikTok a lot, and he's just, it's, it's given him an incredible creative outlet mm-hmm. to create content. It's just fun to watch. You think it'll still be TikTok when he's in high school? You think it'll be something else? It'll be something else, I'm sure. Well, congratulations. It's an amazing story and just such a quick ride. And un- it's just unbelievable to see what you've you. accomplished no, I appreciate in a short it. time. Congratulations. Thanks for having me. Thanks for sharing your story. Of course. Well, what a fantastic story. I always enjoy talking to Chad. I learn something and I just get so inspired and motivated hearing how his entrepreneurial journey just evolved. It's so amazing. Let's get some more perspective. Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Gino Giovanelli is a digital marketing expert and, of course, a fan of all things entrepreneurial. And I know, Gino, that you, like me, were just kind of uh, uh, amazed by uh, by Chad's early story. Yeah, you know, it just it was such a good feel-good story that mm-hmm. I needed when I listened to it a couple times yesterday. Just, you know, here's a guy, came out of Adelaide, uh, Australia, uh, son of a mechanic, watched his dad work seven days a week tirelessly, willing to do anything to provide for his family. You know, and that's, I think that, that kind of environment, it's no surprise that that generates, that kind of household generates people that are willing to just go to the mat mm-hmm. and do whatever it takes to be successful. And, you know, I think I counted, he said the word scrappy, I think like six or seven times. Probably. And it's one of my, it's, it's one of my favorite words, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's a differentiator because not everybody can be that. You can't learn how to be scrappy. I think it's, I think it's in your DNA. Right. And it was just so interesting to hear how he just, he just kept climbing and climbing and climbing and, and actually got passion from it. And I think that helped perpetuate it it forward. And and I'm also a sucker for a good Australian accent, honestly. It's just like everything he says sounds like genius. I'm like, oh, of course, you know, it's like, but um, yeah. Everything's, I, I everything's a little more charming with an accent, that's for Abs- sure. Absolutely. absolutely. What I love about Chad's story is just how, you know, he, he had that early interest in, in filmmaking, but then it all just sort of unfolded from there. It's not like he set out to be a retail rep. Right, right. I think a couple things happened for him. I think one is he, he realized the value of scale. I mean, I think a lot of marketers tend to be tactical. Like we're, we're going to put a campaign together and we're going to place it in this publication and we're going to try to drive transactions and sales. And I think he realized like, I can only make a certain amount of money in that model. Mm-hmm. Even though it makes a company a lot of money, his money was fixed. It's a fixed bid kind of thing. Yeah. He learned the power of scale means if I can help companies make a ton of money, with my services via scaling, I can make a ton of it. Mm-hmm. And I live, when, I live off of what they make. And it's like a win-win right. as opposed to a simple transaction. You know, again, making a video ad for, for a printer cartridge business, it makes a ton of money for the printer cartridge business, but not so much for him. So I think sure. that the, the power of scale uh, is, is, is one of his unique elements that he brings to the game. And, and it only comes from when he's willing to walk away from what got him there 
to what's going to get him to the next place. It's, right. it's, the, it's a strategic focus. And I, you know what, Allison, I tell my students all the time, I'm like, please don't think tactically about marketing. Hmm. Think strategically. But it's harder to think strategically. Okay, this whole omni-channel thing, it's like making it easy for customers to do business with you. You know what? That's the hardest thing in the world probably, right? Hmm. But you think, you think it's going to be easy to make things easy for them. It's hard to make things easy for your customer. I tell my students who build a website in my class, it's easy to make a website that's hard to use. It's really hard to make a website that's easy to use. And they, and they kind of nod a little bit and they go, huh, interesting, you know, kind of dog turned the head thing. And I'm like, no, you're going to build a website in my class and you're going to know how hard it is mm-hmm. to make it easy for your customer. Because when you get feedback from your customer, you're going to hear how hard it was for them. Okay, so knowing that it's hard is maybe the first step, but, but any advice for making it easier? Well, you know, is is it's being selfless is to, is to say I'm going to do the hard things to make it easy for someone else, and I think I think that's in in Chad's DNA. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think I think he gets that that to do it right for some other people, you've got to work hard, just like his dad worked really hard for his family. Yeah, and I think it's and it's not giving up. It's just it's going to the mat, like he said. He he would work all day long, and then he'd go at night to networking events, and then he'd look in yellow pages and circle businesses and send them. I mean, he, he did whatever it took. And I yeah. think it's, it's just being willing to, to work harder than everybody else. And I tell my students all the time, I'm like, look, you know, work harder and smarter or not work harder or smarter. It's, it's both. Mm-hmm. Okay. Everybody's, everybody's smart elevator only goes to a certain floor <laughs> called the eighth floor. <laughs> you can't, you can't do anything to go to the ninth floor, but you can work harder than anybody. Yeah. Yep. And, if you're, and if you're willing to work harder, that can be your differentiator. And I think if you, if you can find that gear, that's how you do it right for the customer. Right. right. That's how you get to the ninth floor. That is. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll meet you there, Gino. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> Gino good. Giovanelli, thank you so much for your perspective and enthusiasm for the story. We appreciate it. And thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. There you'll find all sorts of episodes, professor perspectives, and more about the show. Thanks so much for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Music